Well, Keystone Church, good morning. Welcome to our online worship experience at Keystone. Uh, if you have seen the announcement that we've made over the past uh, couple of days, uh, you know that we are in the process of reopening our in-person worship services. Uh, beginning July 12th, we will begin opening our doors at 9 o'clock and 1035 uh, for what you will um, see is a relatively normal worship service. We'll gather for preaching, for prayer, uh, for singing, for fellowshipping. Uh, there'll just be a handful of restrictions, a handful of accommodations uh, that we can begin to um, gather together. I'd encourage you, if you've not seen uh, an outline of what our plan is to reopen, to go to keystonechurch.org. Uh, and on that page, you'll see our, our COVID-19 response. Uh, and you'll be able to read about our three-phase plan to reopen, small groups, partial reopening, and eventual full reopening. As we are looking forward to the summer, uh, we are looking forward to a staycation Bible school for our kids' ministry. One of Keystone's highlights of the year is our ability to connect with the next generation, both at Keystone and in our community. Uh, if you have kids, if you're a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, uh, or parents at Keystone, or know friends who would benefit from being able to interact with gospel center materials for your kids, we'd encourage you to go to keystonechurch.org uh, and look for the link for kids ministry so that you can sign up to have your kids receive a toolkit you should do this before June 17th because we want to distribute those toolkits on June 24th uh, in preparation for VBS, our Staycation Bible School, starting June 28th. Uh, if you have any questions about our Staycation Bible School, uh, we encourage you to go to keystonechurch.org, uh, and there you'll find all of the ways uh, to connect with us. And one of those ways might actually be gathering together in small groups with neighbors and friends. Uh, during this phase that we're in, starting June 1st through um, the end of the summer, really, now we're encouraging small groups of people to gather at Keystone, whether in care groups that you may have already established or new impromptu groups. And those new impromptu groups might be for like a staycation Bible school where you invite your friends and family over uh, to be able to do this thing together. It might be actually, maybe you're doing it right now, worshiping together in your home, not just with your family, but with a handful of families. Uh, we think that God has created us to live and grow in relationships. And so we're encouraging that as you feel comfortable and as you feel ready uh, to consider how you might be able to worship and grow, not just in isolation, but in community. Um, as we uh, start our worship service, I want to pray for us that God would continue to use these virtual experiences uh, to have genuine uh, progress and growth in our lives. So would you join me in praying? And Father, we turn our face to you this morning, desiring for you to have uh, an effect on our souls, that we would feel as though we are meeting you face to face, that your spirit would open our mind and open our heart to see and savor you in ways that we may have known and forgotten or ways that we might have seen for the very first time. Because Lord, we want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We want to become the, the loving, gracious, patient, merciful, justice-seeking people that you've designed us to be. And I pray, Lord, that during this worship service, even as we are scattered throughout the county, that you would be building us up as a church to grow strong, that we might stand with the oppressed, concerned for the widow and the orphan, the poor and the stranger, 
and that we might be able to tear down walls of hostility and unite under the one banner of Christ, that whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether white or black or any other color, that we might link arms in worship around our one true King. Lord, lead us now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Keystone Church and uh, everybody else who is uh, tuning in. We're glad to have you here this morning. Good to be together uh, virtually. Uh, we are looking forward. Four weeks from today, we're going to have our first public services again, and we're excited about that. Uh, for those of you who will be able to join us, and for those of you who can't or really don't feel comfortable yet, uh, we're going to be uh, continuing to live stream. Actually, we're going to be upgrading to a true live stream, not just a recording uh, like these have been these past few months. I want you to look back in your life. So I don't care whether you're 15 years old or 30 or 60. Look back on your life and just kind of let your mind wander. Think about the things that you remember. Now, as I've gotten older, I find out I don't remember a whole lot. But the things that do come to my mind are high points. So I remember getting married. I remember having our first child. I remember um, graduating from seminary. I remember um, buying our first house. You know the other thing that I remember well? The low points. Not just the, the celebrations, but the times of sorrow. Um, things like, uh, even as I remember back, things that I have said to Betty that hurt her and haunted me. Um, times when I've been sick and I wonder if there's ever going to be any improvement. And you could probably identify there are things in, in your life where you look back and, and the, the, high, the high points stick out readily, but so do the, the low points. Did you ever wonder why that is? Why the most memorable things in life are not only the really awesome things, but the really awful things as well. It's not the normal day in and day out average, go to work, go to school, uh, get ready, eat meals. That's not the stuff that springs to our minds. It's the high points and the low points. It's the celebrations, but it's also the sorrows, the suffering. We started uh, talking about suffering a couple of weeks ago, rethinking suffering. And two weeks ago, we talked, uh, looked at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We talked about how did suffering come about? Why do we live in a world that is marked by suffering? And then last week, we talked about how we should suffer as Christians. What is the Christian way to suffer? Is it to embrace suffering? We, like, we look for suffering. We try, to, we try to attract it to ourselves because there's some sort of spiritual... Um, sophistication to that or spiritual importance to that or just endure it or should we even escape it if we have the opportunity today I want to talk about how does God use suffering and you might hear in that question already there's an assumption that I'm making and that is that God does use suffering if so how I have a, a number of tools here this morning I'm a I'm a woodworker and I used to do it for a living now I do it just for Fun. And I've got a whole variety of tools in my shop. Everything from big equipment uh, like a table saw, a mortiser. I've got a 
uh, six by 36 inch belt sander. Uh, I have a compound miter saw. And then I've got a wide variety of power tools like this uh, that I use by hand. Skill saw, router, uh, I've got a, a jig saw, I've got actually another router, I've got uh, belt sander, number of sanders. Every one of those power tools is designed to do one thing, and that is to in some way remove wood. So I've got a number of pieces of wood here that I've machined with my tools. These two pieces of oak, I have uh, cut a miter on both of them, and so that they can now be put together and you can glue or staple them together and make a picture frame or something that requires a frame-like approach. These two can be attached. And then I have a piece of oak here that I put a 3 8 inch bead on. You can see that profile um, on the edge. I put that on with this, this router. And uh, of course that blade spins around at 10, 12,000 RPMs and cleans out the wood, uh, curves the top, curves the bottom, cleans out the wood in that uh, section between the squared off of oak and able to get that nice profile on there. And it makes wood that was plain and kind of boring uh, looks more beautiful. And uh, when a project's done that I might have that bead to be part of, it's going to look more beautiful than it would if it was all square edges. So even my sanding tools designed to remove small amounts of wood, this designed to remove large amounts of wood, this designed to cut, cut and separate pieces of wood. I want to talk about um, the tools this morning. I just want to use, have this tool, this hand tool, represent all of these other tools. Uh, this is a rasp, and uh, it's basically a file on the, this side is flat, and it has a section that's, uh, the teeth are very fine, section where they're very coarse. On the back side is a curved profile. Uh, again, a coarse section and a fine section. And if I take this rasp to this piece of cedar, uh, it can take a lot of wood out in a small amount of time. And so I might, I might say I'm going to put this on... Uh, a corner in my house and there's something sticking out, maybe there's a piece of drywall that's kind of buckled out right there, and I want to put this in the corner by taking the rasp to it, it makes a little round indentation, and I can slip that into the corner and not have that protrusion on the wall be a problem. Uh, so let's, let's let the rasp this morning represent all of the tools in my workshop and yours. And let's let it uh, represent all of the suffering that God ordains for our lives and allows to come. Every one of these tools, again, makes wood more usable, makes wood more beautiful. And, you know, maple and mahogany and um, cedar, oak, wood does not feel pain when the saw cuts through it, when the router goes across it. Uh, that's different for you and I. When God brings the rasp into our lives <clears throat> and runs it across us, it hurts. We feel the pain. You do and, and I do. And when someone uh, permits it or inflicts it on us, let's say uh, you've been hurt by a spouse, uh, you've been uh, trashed by a colleague at work or 
member of your team. Uh, it hurts and it seems cruel to you. But the Bible, rather than depicting the suffering that God allows into our lives as cruel, depicts it as one of God's tools. That is that he's not cruel, but he's rather crafting. He is a craftsman and the tool of suffering in his hands is designed to make more out of us than we would ever bother to make out of ourselves if left to our own. So I have three points this morning. You may want to print out that um, notes, that, uh, the sermon notes that are available there online. Um, but we're going to pray and ask God for his help before we dive into the rest of it. Uh, Father, um, even as I was getting these tools ready this morning, I, I picked up a metal, a metal splinter from the rasp and, and it hurt. And I was determined to get it out before we um, began recording this sermon because it's distracting. It draws me away from what I want to focus on for this time. And we feel that the same way with all the suffering that we're going through. Uh, all of us experiencing a, a, a multitudes of suffering through this COVID-19. Um, loss of jobs, um, uh, loss of the freedom to move about, uh, taking care in um, sanitizing our hands, our homes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you're looking down on us and, and maybe asking, I wish they were as careful about sanitizing their hearts. And we want that, Lord. We want our hearts to be sanitized. We're so grateful for the uh, work that Jesus Christ did in our lives to make us right with you, and yet um, we know that you call us to, um, uh, to purify our hearts, um, uh, to draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. And so we pray for that. And as suffering people, we pray that in the midst of our suffering, we would draw near to you, that we would not run from you as some have. And their legacy is, I, I abandoned faith because times got really hard. Uh, we would pray that we would be like, instead, those who have run to you and not from you in the midst of suffering, in the thick of the hard times, that they would find, they would say like Peter, <laughs> Where else are we going to go? Who else are we going to turn to? No one else has the words of life. And I pray, Father, for all of us to hear your voice well this morning, to hear your voice of both comfort and challenge, of, uh, of realism, and, and yet a voice of reliability and promise and uh, uh, looking forward to a, a time and an eternity when there is no more suffering and all tears are dried, all questions have been resolved as we look into the light of your eternal glory face. We love you and we thank you for loving us because um, that, was, that was so evident when you pinned your own son to the cross and laid down his life for us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. My first point this morning is that even Jesus felt the rasp. Even Jesus felt the rasp. And let me explain why that's so important to be reminded of. You're sitting um, around your table or on your couch at home. 
And you're probably, despite the first two sermons that we've already had on suffering, you're probably saying, I still don't understand why I have diabetes. I, I still don't understand why I have asthma. I still uh, don't understand why I've lost my job. And I can't seem to find another one, at least one that's going to uh, provide for my family the way my other one did. I, I still don't understand why my father walked out on us kids when we were all so young. I still don't understand. I still don't understand. I, why, why, why? And likely within your soul are two competing suspicions that are lobbying for your attention and lobbying for your belief. The one is that you are suffering unjustly, that you've done nothing to deserve this and God has allowed this into your life without cause. That's the one suspicion. The other suspicion is really the opposite of that. That God has allowed this in your life precisely because you have done something either recently or in the distant past that you can't even remember. That there's a cause and effect explanation for your suffering. You did this or you failed to do this that God desired and as a result you are now suffering this way. Those are the two common suspicions that plague pretty much everyone on the planet. There is a reason for this and I'm the cause of it, or there's no reason for this and God's the cause of it, there's no explanation and he's a big meanie for allowing it. Let this lift your spirits and if you're a believer, never forget it. Jesus never did one thing wrong and yet he suffered. Jesus didn't do so much as one thing wrong in his entire life from birth to death and yet he suffered. And so those of you suffering you should purge, 99% of you should purge the idea that there's this cause and effect, I did this and now God is doing this to me. And we have to leave that 1% room because God does discipline those he loves. Hebrews 12. But listen, if your suffering is disciplined for something you've done, God is going to make it abundantly clear to you. After all, which of you who are parents discipline your children and keep them in the dark for why you're disciplining them? Which of you would, would see your daughter misbehave and you would scold her two days later, make no connection for her, with her misbehavior to the discipline you're applying? You wouldn't do that. You'd make it abundantly clear. I, I would pull a son up on my lap and say, uh, son, this, the, remember we talked about if this happens again, this is going to be the consequence. You remember that? Yes, Daddy. Uh, then we have to apply the consequence that we promised. Uh, yes, Daddy. And I would roll him over my knee and I would spank him and then we, I'd turn him back over. I would cuddle him and say, now, just to reiterate, just to review, we did this because Mommy and Daddy had told you if this happens again, this is going to be the consequence. And if it continues to happen, again, this will be the consequence until you change the behavior. We love you too much to allow this to go on. That, that's what a 
daddy does. And that's what your father does. So if there's nothing apparent that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, you should not conclude that it's because you've done something wrong or failed to do something right. Even Jesus suffered, and he never did anything, not even one thing wrong. And not only did he suffer on the cross, his life was marked by suffering. The last picture that we have of Jesus' father, Joseph, was when Jesus was 12 and he got left behind in Jerusalem and the family headed back to Nazareth without him. 12 years old. Never see him again. And most Bible teachers think that he died, probably not just died at some point, but probably died while Jesus was still a teenager. He lost his dad. I, he, his mom and his siblings, at one point in his ministry, actually pretty early on in his ministry, thought he'd lost his mind. They came to force him to come back home, which would serve as the mental institution for him, because he'd lost his mind. When he came back to his hometown to preach, the people that he had grown up with, that he had played with, the homes that he had been in when he was a child, these very people tried to kill him. And it was a close friend that betrayed him for money, sold him out, that ultimately sent him to the cross. And again, this, none of this suffering was God mistreating him, nor was it the consequence of some sin. It was God's training for him. It was God's training tool. It was God's rasp, if you will. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Even though Jesus was God's son, even though he was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. That's, that's almost inconceivable. Let me read it again. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Now the mistake that we could make in reading that is that what he means, what the writer means here, is that Jesus was disobedient previously, and so God made him suffer, and then he began to be obedient. How can that possibly be? When just verses prior to this, the writer says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, but unlike we are, was without sin. So he doesn't mean that he was disobedient and suffering made him obedient. Rather, what he means is that Jesus, by experience, by having his obedience tested, when he was put into positions such as with the devil in the wilderness, where he was weak and hungry and uh, all alone, up against the greatest uh, opponent of God's in the universe. He had his obedience tested, and he came through with flying colors. And that was true every time he was tested. Now his, his obedience to God has been through the fires. It has been purified, it has been tested, it has been reinforced. And in the same way, God reinforces our obedience through its testing. And since Jesus suffered, so will we. This is one thing that the New Testament says over and over. It links our suffering with Jesus' suffering. Paul even says that he fills up in his body um, the sufferings that 
uh, Jesus didn't finish. In other words, the disciples that come after Jesus are now going to suffer like Jesus. Jesus said, if they hate, hate me, they'll hate you as well. Uh, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you as well. And so we're going to continue to feel the, the suffering nature of, of following Jesus and being in this cursed-filled world. 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, verse 1, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, and this might mean persecution, but it might simply mean that the things that come across our paths simply as, as we follow him might be as insignificant as blowing up the transmission in your car and you don't really have the $4,000 necessary to replace it. It's part of... I mean, someone who's not following Jesus could go out and steal in order to pay for that. But as a follower of Jesus, we're going to find godly ways to take care of that. So let me read it again. If you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing down your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Since Jesus suffered, so will you. So will you. One of, the th one of the mistakes that I think we make as Christians is to tell people who are contemplating following Jesus Christ that all that needs to be done is to pray a prayer and they're good to go. If that prayer is honest and sincere, there's some truth to that. But it doesn't tell them the whole story and in as much as it doesn't, it's a half-truth rather than a whole truth. The half-truth is, trust Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins, and you become a child of God. That's true, but it's only half of the story. The other half of the story is, buckle up, because if you're going to follow Jesus, your life is going to become very difficult. It just is. Point number two. The first point is, even Jesus felt the rasp. Even Jesus felt the rasp. Point number two, the feel of the rasp. The, the, the running across the surface of your life that the sufferings do. The feel of the rasp is not what the craftsman is doing to you, but what the craftsman is doing for you. The feel of the rasp is not what the craftsman is doing to you, but what he is doing for you. In 1969, country music star Johnny Cash, who's long since passed away, was on his way to San Quentin Prison in California to do a, a concert for the prisoners there, which would be recorded live and turned into an album, a live album. Before he left, he had grabbed a lyric sheet that contained a song had been written by a, a songwriter named Shel Silverstein. Nobody had picked the song up. Most people thought because the subject matter of the song was not one that would resonate with most audiences. It was a story about a man who was, it was a ballad. He was going to grow up and go looking for his father so he could kill him. And the reason that he wanted to kill him is because he had done something horrible to him before he left. Now, Johnny Cash had never sang this song before. He had never rehearsed it with his band. But his wife, June, thought that the subject matter might resonate 
with the prisoners. And so something on a whim, Johnny Cash pulled this lyric sheet out in the concert and began to sing it. And if you see the video of it, you see his eyes are glued to the lyric sheet because he doesn't know it. It's a pretty simple tune, and so the band just kind of filled in behind Johnny and his guitar and his singing slash talking. It was done in some, almost, a, almost a rap form, country style. And it was a story about a boy who, whose father had had the um, bad judgment to name him a girl's name, to name him Sue. And he said, and so Johnny starts to sing. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much for Ma and me except this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. But he determined that he was going to find his dad one day and kill him for giving him that awful name. And so the band, again, not rehearsed, they're singing along or they're playing along behind Johnny Cash. The story unfolds. John, uh, the boy is now a man and in a saloon in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, sure enough, he runs into his dad. He goes over and he introduces himself. How do you do? My name is Sue. Now you're going to die. And they begin to fight. The fight spills out of the saloon, out into the street. Both men draw guns, but the son draws quicker. And the dad begins to talk to him. He says, I understand you're angry at me. You could kill me now, and I wouldn't blame you if you did. But let me tell you the other side of the story. I knew that I wouldn't be there for you as you were growing up. I, I, I couldn't toughen you up and I couldn't protect you. And so I gave you that name because I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And as Johnny sings the song, he sings, I came away with a different point of view. I threw down my gun, I called him a Paul, he called me a son. And that's an extraordinarily feeble illustration for this point, but it is an illustration. Because the objective, while the surrounding circumstances were not true, God's not abandoned you. Nevertheless, the objective of suffering is very similar to the objective that this dad had for his son. James chapter one, verse, beginning of verse two says this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind, so you fill in the blank with your particular troubles, whether it's ones you have now or a season in your life where you thought you couldn't make it. <clears throat> when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity and let just stop there. If you were going to start a sentence with, when troubles of any kind come my way, in your wildest dreams, would you ever think of ending it with, consider it an opportunity? <laughs> no. You'd consider it a stroke of bad luck. You'd consider it a horrible, bad, awful, no good day. You would not consider it an opportunity, let alone, the way he finishes the sentence, an opportunity for great joy. Let's read that again. When troubles of any kind come your way, he's talking to Christians. 
consider it an opportunity for great joy. How can this possibly be? He goes on. For you know that when your faith is tested, back to the testing idea, your endurance has a chance to grow. Now, do you, do you see the way he's said that? When your faith isn't tested, your endurance has a chance. Now, that, that makes it sound like this is, op, uh, this is optimistic. This would be a great thing if it would happen. Your endurance has a chance to grow. That's why this is so positive. When trouble comes your way, it's an opportunity for great joy because your faith, when it's tested, your, uh, your endurance has a chance to grow. You could become stronger. You could become tougher. There could be muscle built into your faith that wouldn't be built into it if you were not tested by suffering. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. When he uses the word perfect, he's not talking about um, sinless perfection, moral perfection. He's talking about maturity, which the New Testament speaks over and over about a desired goal for the believer that God has. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not, God's great goal for you is not smooth sailing in this life. It is that you become a mature follower of Jesus Christ, not an infant. The writer of the Hebrews sees that as a horribly bad thing, as a deficient thing. Everything's gone wrong for you as a Christian if you are immature, if you're shallow. Your faith is untested. Your faith won't take you very far down the street. What's valuable is endurance, endurance. And so this suffering develops endurance in you. Whatever you're going through, one of the two things, and I prayed about this at the beginning, one of two things is happening with your faith. You're either running from God, you're running to God. There's probably no middle ground. You're either running from God or you're running to God. Ted Turner, the founder of CNN and TNT, broadcasting mogul, grew up in a Christian home. Even contemplated becoming a missionary when he was a young man. And then his sister got very sick. And he prayed for her and he cried out to the Lord for her. And she died. And he washed his hands of Jesus. Suffering is either going to make or break you. It's either going to build your endurance and strengthen your faith, not in and of, of, itself, of yourself, but a, a, a faith that is built on the solid foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and carried out into maturity. Let me take you back to 1 Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> so be truly glad, he's talking to sufferers, be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead. In other words, a day is coming. Of course, he's talking about when we go to meet the Savior. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. For a little while. It's interesting. On a couple of occasions, New Testament writers speak about the suffering in this life 
as a small thing. And the reason they can do that is because they're looking ahead at the large thing that is ahead that's going to make this small thing that's but a blip in history, your life here on earth, my life here on earth, is a blip in history compared to the eternal joy of being with the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us forever and ever and ever with every tear wiped from our eye, no more sorrow, no more grief, no, no more stumbling through this life. Everything has been purified. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Now here's what Peter says these trials are doing. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Let's go back to Ted Turner. If I understand the New Testament correctly, you cannot be a child of God and then not be a child of God. You cannot be a Christian and then not be one. Because faith, if it's authentic, endures. Perseverance of the saints. Faith, if it's authentic, endures. And conversely, if it doesn't endure, it's not authentic. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Opportunity in seeing his sister sick and then die. Opportunity to see whether or not his faith is genuine. And the proof was in the pudding. He turned his back on Christ. So. It, trials will verify, suffering will verify your faith. It is being tested, your faith is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. So it not only verifies your faith, it purifies your faith. When, um, when gold is purified, it is heated up to extreme temperatures because if in becoming a liquid, the impurities are separated from the gold and you have the real deal, and you have the stuff that <laughs> takes away from the real deal. You have this over here, you have the pure gold over here. When you and I go through the fire, our faith is purified. All the junk that lingers there, all of the man-centered thoughts and the man-centered affections begin to fall away in suffering. And then a magnificent statement, and I, I, I may be wrong about this. Some of you who are Bible students may, may know a different answer, but I don't think there's a place in the Bible that makes more out of us as human beings than this statement right here. He says, it will bring you, not God, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Huh. Uh, that's the kind of language that we usually hear about God. Praise and glory and honor to his name. Praise and glory and honor to the Lamb's name. But no, in the testing of our faith, in the sufferings that it endures, it's going to bring much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. It's going to bring that to you. And I see in this text that our faith is verified and our faith is purified. And yes, even if you can believe this, our faith is glorified. It brings us glory when Jesus comes back. I, I want to take a break right here and just spend a couple minutes and 
Maybe you'll want to slip away if you're with your family, slip away to another room. I want to just take a couple of minutes and have you take your suffering to God and ask Him, whatever it is you're going through, ask Him to help you see this glorious truth that your suffering is working out in you, not just endurance, but a faith that is authenticated, it's verified, it's, it's proven whether it's true or not. It, it's purifying your faith, and one day it will ultimately glorify your faith. Just, just take a minute and call out to God. Maybe you're there already, you understand these things, and just you want to thank Him for that, that He's accomplishing good things. If you're not there, say, God, just bring this truth to bear in my life that I would suffer with an understanding heart and mind. Do that right now. Father, we confess that it's hard. And we confess that at times we have had thoughts that are unworthy of you and unworthy of our faith. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the repeated input of the Word of God, May we see and appreciate and yes, even rejoice in and praise you for what you are doing for us in the midst of suffering. We know sometimes that in our suffering, we, we wanna say things like, if, if one person can come to Jesus Christ because of what I'm suffering, it'll be worth it. And we say those things similar hopes because we want so much to see a good effect, a good result from our suffering. And yet I'm, I think, I'm right on this, that the vast majority of the effect of um, the suffering in our lives is not seen by us. It's seen by you and it's seen by others. And those two matter enough. May we trust you in the midst of our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. And the last point before I close this out, and this is going to be the most difficult thing, I think, for us to embrace and even delight in when it comes to suffering. When we have parent-child dedication, one of the last things that we uh, ask the parents to say is that they 
relinquish this child whom they love and treasure back to God for him to do as he sees fit. That's an acknowledgement that the most valuable, glorious, important one in the universe is God himself. Not us, not our longings, not our desires, and not even our children. Not even the person that means the most to us. This is the point. The rasp is ultimately not about you. When you feel the rasp on your life that you know ultimately is controlled by God, it might have been brought to you by other people, Satan might be behind it, but if it's a rasp, then God's at work on you for good. The rasp is ultimately not about you. It's about the craftsman. It's about the craftsman. John chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. John chapter 9, <clears throat> we've alluded to this story many times in many sermons because it is so profound. But we've never really plumbed the depths of the man in the story. As Jesus was walking along, verse 1, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or his parents' sin? It was not because of his sins, not because of his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned, to, assigned us by the one who sent us. Night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he spit on the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and he spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man washed, uh, went and washed and came back seeing. Now put yourself in the man's shoes. We don't know how, how old he was. He could have been 20. He could have been 40 or 50. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he still has a lot of life to live. He's 25. But for 25 years, he could not see the face of his beloved mother and father. For 25 years, he could never see his own profile in a mirror. For 25 years, he couldn't see the clothes he put on. He couldn't even see how to put them on. For 25 years, he could not see the face of his boyhood friends. For 25 years, he could not help his father in his shop or business. For 25 years, he could not see the food that he ate. For 25 years, he could not see a sunrise or a sunset nor see the wind blow the, the grain across a field like waves. He could hear, but he couldn't see the ocean. He could swim in, but he couldn't see the beauty of a lake. And when he became a man, he had no profession, he had no occupation, because in those days they didn't make opportunities for those with disabilities to use whatever gifts they could. 
for 25 years because God was waiting 25 years to show his power on a day when he would encounter Jesus. This man would encounter Jesus and Jesus would heal him for 25 years. God left him The rasp is ultimately not, all about, not ultimately about you. When this goes across our lives and takes off joy, takes away happiness, takes away an attitude, all is right with the world, when that rasp does that, we instinctively think it's about us and it must be something we did wrong, or it must be something we failed to do right, or God's not treating us treat, uh, justly, and certainly that means it's all about us. And it's not. Brother, sister, in Jesus Christ, you have been saved not just for your own, yourself. You have been saved for God's glory, not just so you could be delivered to a future uh, eternity, with God. You have been delivered to a future eternity because your life redounds to God's glory. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory, not to us, not to us, not to John, not to Mary, not to Seth, not to Heather, not to us. But to you, be all the glory. And that changes everything about suffering. In Isaiah chapter 48, God says this about his people Israel. Verse 9. He's talking about his frustration with Israel and its sin. And yet for my own sake and for the honor of my name, I will hold back my anger and I will not wipe you out. Now this is the kind of the opposite of suffering. He's going to withdraw his hand of suffering. He's going to withdraw the rasp, but not because they're good people. I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. And I will rescue you for my sake. Yes, for my own sake. When God had had it with Israel and their rebellion in the wilderness, he said to Moses, just stand back. I'm going to kill every one of them. I'm going to wipe out all two, three million of them. And then I'm going to start over with you. And you know what Moses said? Oh God, don't do that. When the nations around hear about what you've done, it will be your glory that is tarnished. Don't do that. And God says, all right, I won't do that. God's glory. This, this is a painful statement. And maybe you need to write it down. Because it, it, it will be needed in every season of your life. God's glory 
matters more than your comfort. God's glory matters more than my comfort. It matters more than the arthritis in my hands. It matters more than the pain in my hip and in my back. It matters way more than any suffering I could go through. God's glory matters most. Donald Miller, in a book that he wrote, said, God sat over the dark nothing, and he wrote you and me specifically into the story, and he put us specifically with the sunsets, in the rainstorms, as though to say, enjoy your place in my story. You see, we tend to put God, have a little place for him in our story. No, no. Enjoy your place in my story, God says. The very beauty of it means it's not about you. And in that in time, that will give you comfort. In time, that will give you comfort. In the years that I have worked with wood, I have had some close calls. I was one day pushing a piece of plywood through a table saw and this thumb got just a little too close to the blade and I just nipped the end of it off, just about a sixteenth of an inch. There was another day I was pushing a piece of wood uh, across a shaper and the wood was pretty high so I was well away from the blades that were down at the bottom. But the nut that was on top of the shaft holding the blades in place, I got my little finger a little too close to that nut which was spinning at about 8,000 RPMs and banged up my knuckle. I still have a scar there. I have um, burned my fingers with hot drill bits. I have uh, braided my hands with belt sanders. Uh, I have put a nail in my thumb and a staple in my finger. And none of those things had any good purpose. They were all accidents. The trajectory of God's suffering that he ordains for our lives and allows in our lives the work of the rasp is always beneficial, never accidental. Stop and think about that for a minute. The work of God's rasp in your life is always beneficial, never accidental. Yes, it hurts, but what God does with it will be exquisite if we submit to him in it. What God does with it will turn out to be exquisite, like a piece of fine furniture, if we can find the grace that God offers us in the power of the Holy Spirit to submit to the work of the rasp in it. Let's pray together. May that be true of me, Lord. May that be true of brothers and sisters this morning listening. May that be true of all of us, that we can see what it might produce, even if we don't know what it will produce, what it could produce. The, the, the beautiful faith that is being built, that is being strengthened, that is being tested, 
and by which you are receiving great glory, and by which even we will one day receive great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Keeson, thanks for worshiping with us in this way. Uh, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit will still be at work uh, in your life in the hours and days ahead. And there are five different ways that you can engage with the, the message and the content at Keystone. Uh, the first is this. Uh, there is a small little button at the bottom of your live streaming tab that's labeled Live Prayer. And we believe that the Spirit of God is able to work whether we are together in person or separated by a distance. And so if you have needs at Keystone, we want to know about those needs so that we can intercede to God on your behalf. And we'd encourage you, no matter where you're at, to be able to click that link and have someone pray for you in real time. The second thing is if you are looking for ways to be helped or looking for ways to help, uh, to go to keystonechurch.org compassion, where you can fill out a survey uh, to give our compassion ministry an idea of how we can, as a body, care for all of its members well, and how you can be a helper at Keystone. Uh, go to that same link at keystonechurch.org compassion. For those of you who have found this experience online uh, or in person in your small groups to be of value, that you want to partner with Keystone uh, on our mission to make disciples who make disciples at Keystone, uh, thank you for your financial support. And if you're looking to continue to partner with us financially, uh, you can go to keystonechurch.org give, uh, and there set up a one-time gift or a reoccurring gift. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Uh, the fourth way to continue to engage would be to ask the questions that are at the end of the sermon notes. Uh, those questions are there for you to continue to let the Spirit of God um, drill down into your heart a bit to be able to think differently, feel differently, that we might act differently as believers. Uh, the pastors are interacting with those questions, reflecting on the sermon during the week. And we send out a video on YouTube uh, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday during the week to let you know how uh, the sermon is continuing to hit us. Uh, we'd love to hear your responses, how the Spirit of God is moving. So if you want to uh, leave something in the comments on the live streaming page or on our YouTube page. The fifth and final way uh, that you can continue to engage with Keystone is uh, to help us prepare for reopening. If you've not seen the document that describes how we're reopening, you can go to keystonechurch.org uh, and look for the COVID response link there. Uh, but one of the most important ways as we begin to regather is to consider who's going to help us. Uh, to pull off live worship services requires a lot of talented, helpful hands, uh, and we need your help. And so if you're able to and are looking forward to regathering on July 12th, uh, would you go to keystonechurch.org slash serve, uh, and there complete just a hand, uh, handful of questions to let us know that you're ready, uh, that when we open our doors, uh, to help us out. Uh, I'm looking forward to that day when we're able to regather, uh, and I'll look forward to seeing you then.